0: So week two was a very, very harrowing week, because at the end of week two, what I figured out was, at that point in time, that 70% of the company is a dud. It was just fictitious invoices.
1: Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Jayabalan Parasingam, or we're going to call him JB for short. JB, are you ready to rock?
0: Yes, I am, and happy Friday and greetings from Kuala Lumpur.
1: Yay. Yeah, great to have and for the audience can't see. You and I are on video. The audience is listening by audio, but what you can see behind JB is a beautiful morning sky. So it's a great Friday. So we're both pretty relaxed. Let's have a relaxed conversation. I'm gonna tell the audience about you a bit. So JB is a certified public accountant and a chartered financial analyst, as if one of those wasn't enough. (laughs) He has over 25 years of corporate experience in areas such as finance, tax, audit, investment banking, private equity, and real estate and investment management. He's been instrumental in the setup of several successful startups over the past 15 years in a range of companies involving BPO, private equity, real estate, and technology. As he said to me earlier, I'm a sucker for stress. <laughs> He's raised over 600 million US dollars in equity commitments over those past 10 years. So JB, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life.
0: Greetings, Andrew. I'm from Malaysia. Most of my deals have been Malaysian. I've done some regional transactions in India and uh, Indonesia specifically. So I do understand those markets to the extent that I've interacted in the other startups in exposure to these markets. Malaysia is a much more simpler market than India and Indonesia, but I think the principles of investing and risk avoidance are generally the same.
1: Amen. Amen. So I was just recently in KL about a month ago, and I hope to be there again in the next month or so. So we'll catch you there. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. All right.
0: It was my second investment, a large investment in back in 2008 uh, or 2007 to be specific. It was just before the global financial crisis that none of us thought would happen, at least in this part of the world. Given this opportunity to come in and do a turnaround of a large listed manufacturing company in Malaysia. It manufactured compact discs, CDRs, CDRWs, and stuff like that. And it had a large balance sheet, a very large balance sheet. It owed banks $1.2 and it was trading at a PE of three times. So the investment thesis was very simple. You come in as deputy CEO, turn the company around, restructure the debt, Restructure the operating team, incentivize them, and in about 18 months, the options that were offered to me should have tripled in value, you know, from P of three to a P of nine times. And I walk away with enough capital to go and do something else or maybe take a year off. So that was the investment thesis. Very exciting. It was deemed one of the largest compact disc manufacturers in Malaysia. It had regional presence. It had a string of AAA-rated banks as its uh, lenders. The original owners were still working in the company. They still were shareholders of the company. And so it had everything going for it at the onset, you know. So I walked through the factory, you know, it had factories were running at full steam. The trucks were full with goods for export. So what could go wrong? This is the perfect time to get a start and do a 3X, right? And high ROEs, so... That was what I entered into. So it was also the first investment that gave me the leap of faith to move from salary type employment to a risk-taking investment opportunity. So that was the background of what happened. And I joined in June of 2007. And as you know, as you come in, the first thing most of us do is we do an audit of the business. And we get to know the operating processes. We get to know the finance department a lot better. We are sitting in the office day in, day out. And now you find that, you know, it's not, the the manufacturing is not running at 100% every day. It's running for, you know, number of hours a week. And as you dig further, you know, you find that the operating investors or the original shareholders didn't come to work every day. They were always traveling, you know, looking for new transactions or new opportunities. And, you know, within a week, I felt that something's really, really wrong. And it just didn't make sense. And I'm not going to wait. One, any-
1: one week? That's amazing. Yeah. So really, I just want to highlight to the audience, you know, JB has a lot of accounting and financial and business experience. But here, he's just talking about within a very short amount of time, he could feel something wasn't right. And I think oftentimes we lose touch sometimes with our intuition or our feelings. So just wanted to interject that there, keep going with your story.
0: So, you know, you start meeting the bankers, having discussions with them. And that's when the worries set in, you know, the conflicting messages that bankers were telling me, because, you know, you meet bank A today and they said, you know, this is what they thought the company was going to do in the next six months. You meet bank B it's a different story. You see bank C, it's a different story. Then it sort of got me worried when every bank seems to have got a different version of what's going to happen in the next six months. And so what I did was then the next step being an ex-auditor, in, or my first job was an auditor, was to look at all documents on my own, one by one. So, you know, it was start at six in the evening when everyone sort of left and go on till about 12 midnight. So week two was a very, very harrowing week because at the end of week two, what I figured out was at that point in time that 70% of the company is a dud. It was just fictitious invoices. Now, you know, one might think today after the event has happened, how did a company with such elaborate myriad of investors, both institutional investors banks, you know, both MNC banks and local Malaysian banks, the auditors was a big four auditor. How did this sort of charade continue for so long, you know, and as investors, everyone is investing, thinking that P or three times, I'll sell out when it's P or five or I'll sell out when it's P or six, you know, I don't even need growth. And that's when I think one of the best lessons I've learned in stock investment is that there is no amount of of under investment that you can do in due diligence. And, you know, you got to start due diligence from way in advance. And what I mean by that is that, you know, speak to the competition, speak to the suppliers, speak to various bankers, speak to ex-employees. And my sense is that, you know, in these days, over the last 10 years, this was 08 to 2018, i see the same mistakes being repeated over and over again due diligence is being done to confirm the investment rather than to say hey wait a minute should we walk away now and lose a little bit of money that we have spent for due diligence and you know bringing the transaction to a stage or do we continue this transaction and spend a lot and have a lot of grief later so you know the i won't go into the exact details of the transactions but basically it was a failure on multiple levels. You know, when you ask the auditors, why didn't you check the fixed assets? Oh, it was specialized equipment. So we could not get a valuation. Did you check why were the trade debtors growing so big? Oh, they are fighting for market share. So they're giving very long times for payment days. So all the signals were there, but there was always a right story at the right time for why it's not an anomaly but all cause for concern. So, And what I find is that they always use brand names and that gives you a sense of comfort that these investee company is something that is solid. So one of the things I've done is that, you know, since then is I really don't care whether it's a big fog audit firm or the bank that it's supporting it is a large bank, you know, negate that because, you know, these guys make mistakes too. And the second one is that if you're going to do due diligence, duty the duty person, you know. The worst thing to do is hire an accounting firm to do the books. But the people who are doing the due diligence have no experience. And I'll give you an example. They were exporting CD-ROMs to a warehouse that they claimed was in the new territories in Hong Kong. I mean, why would CD-ROMs go to a new territories in Hong Kong? But I know Hong Kong. I've been to Hong Kong. It just don't make sense, you know. It should be at the port because if it's going to be re-exported to uh, the U.S. And these are signs that, you know, something is not right, you know, or when the names are all too familiar. And from that perspective, I think, you know, do the painful part. Pick up the phone and call the supplier or get someone else to, uh, you trust to call the supplier, pretend to be a purchaser. And that would give you a good understanding of the company's, actual strength and weaknesses because there's no perfect company, right? So, and you can avoid duds like this, you know, where, you know, basically, you know, to answer, uh, maybe I should have told this upfront is, you know, it is zero cent on the dollar for recovery. You know, you lost everything, but on the good part is like, you know, you, you do that as your first one, as long as you can recover and continue to do other investments, then you're okay.
1: So let me ask you one question, and I think you told a great story, (laughs) and also given your experience, but how did you extract yourself or extricate yourself from the situation? Did you say it was a listed company?
0: It was. So So, so there's
1: lots of kind of legal obligations and other things that I would assume that you'd have to make a decision pretty quickly to say, I got to get out of this or else I'm going to get nailed with this.
0: Yep. So... There were a lot of bankers screaming at me. The very first meeting where I tell the bankers that you're not going to get any of your 1.2 billion ringgit of debt repaid. There were 60 of them in the room and I had no answers. So, you know, it was like picture the poor guy who had to tell a group of journalists on MH370 that we don't know where the plane is. And my answer to them is, I don't know where the money went. And I've been there two weeks, you know. So it wasn't no fun at all. Of course, uh, you know, we went and saw the regulators early on, both the Stock Exchange and the Securities Commission. Very quickly, we hired uh, advisors who are competent in this sort of situation.
1: When you said we, who does that mean? Does that mean the bankers? I mean, or was there someone on the board or someone that said, hey, we've got to take action here?
0: Well, basically, you know, I had to act with the support of the board. So when I used V, I had to guide the board to make these decisions, you know, mm-hmm. go and see the regulators now, not after uh, any longer, because every day we don't see the regulators that we are becoming attached to the transactions. Yep. yep. Uh, so we went and saw them earlier, saw the bankers, but a lot of very angry and nasty bankers, you know.
1: So how did you get out yourself of this situation?
0: I was already stuck in it. So you know you had to complete the job, you had to bring it to some closure. So what was a turnaround, a distress investment, so to speak, a a cheap buyout, so to speak, became an audit and investigation project. And you know it brought it to closure. We had to release 5,000 people off their jobs, make sure they didn't burn the factory down because a lot of them were foreign workers keep them happy, kept a skeleton crew. So that, uh, and then we finally handed the company the keys over to the insolvency department of a big, large company. Got it. So it's sort of like brought it to closure. Not a great thing to put on your CV, but it's lifelong experience. For and, sure. And, you know, when you see some transactions that I've seen over the last four or five years, like one MDP, it doesn't surprise me. It is, it's almost the same skills, you know.
1: Okay. Let me summarize what I take away from it. After interviewing many people about their mistakes and worst investments, I've learned that there's six main categories. And a lot of what happened in this case is category two, which is failed to properly assess risk. It's also a bit of mistake number four, which is called, I call it misplaced trust. And What's interesting about the learning that that I take away from it, and I think the audience can gain a lot from, is what I try to say is that use an investment process, a six-step investment process. First, find your idea. Second, research your return. Third, assess your risk. Fourth, create your investment plan. Fifth, execute your plan. And sixth, monitor your progress. Now that doesn't seem like anything revolutionary, but the one thing that is revolutionary to me is separating the research that you do on return and risk. Obviously, we get excited about new ideas and we get excited about the return. We can sit there and calculate what we could be making you know, on this. But you need to use the due diligence process, particularly in this case, to set up a team within your organization or your group of people that their whole job is to try to say, we shouldn't do this. What are the reasons? What are the risks? And I think uh, one of the prior interviewees that I had from uh, from London talked about actually having that counter debate and requiring it in an investment process. So that's the first thing about due diligence. And also, I think the other thing is about due diligence is just go to see. Just go and see. If you've ranked and said, well, these are the top 10 customers, go meet them. If you're shipping stuff to warehouses, go to the warehouse and see. And that's a big part of due diligence. And then I think the other one, which I think this really, really highlights the idea of misplaced trust, people that are maybe manipulating, cooking the books, playing games, they're absolutely going to go to big brand names, as you said, and use them to hide what they're doing. And that could be, you know, brand names in customers, brand names in suppliers, it could be brand names in the audit firms, it could be brand names of the banks, but I like to say, to be a great analyst, you must start with the premise, trust nothing, trust no one. In other words, get evidence, and what you've illustrated so well is that even branded companies and big companies and successful companies can easily miss the things that, particularly when someone's really working hard to hide stuff, but also when they're not working that hard, it still can be missed. Is there anything you'd add to that?
0: Oh, I think you put it very succinctly. Thank you for that. I think the only thing I would add is that, you know, even the people who are doing the due diligence, you have to make sure they, they understand that particular sector or space well enough. They have enough relationships in that sector where they could give you information that would not be otherwise easily available. And that, that's worth a lot. You know. Got it. Got so, it. May them well.
1: Okay, so based on what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate?
0: Well, you know, 2019 seems to be a volatile year coming, coming forward. And I think what has happened in the past may not necessarily happen in the future. So there are going to be a lot of companies who are at the peak of their earnings cycle. So be very careful in 2019 if you're making those investments.
1: Great, great point and great advice because this was a story of, you know, things had gone well for that company in the past. But then when the bottom drops out, or as I think it's Warren Buffett likes to say, when the tide goes out, you can see who's not wearing a swimsuit. So last major question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months?
0: Well, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities. I'm working very hard to set up a platform. I've been talking to a lot of experienced people in a particular space. Logistics, very excited about logistics in Malaysia. And I'm hoping to set up the platform by quarter four of 2019. So lots of uh, stress, as I told you earlier, over the next nine months to pull a team together and get this moving forward.
1: Well, I believe you can do it. So, all right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we wrap up, JP, thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for our audience?
0: All the best for 2019 and keep tuning in.
1: Amen. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.